0: Good evening, and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, and I'm sitting in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor, and it's good to have you back um, this evening.
1: Good evening, well, Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. I want to thank Mr. Campbell for filling, filling for me while I was away.
0: Bible prophecy. It has captured the excitement of many. It's overwhelmed some to the point where they have ignored it altogether. Maybe you have questions about prophecy. Well, tonight we are starting a new series on the topic of Bible prophecy, and I have three requests for you. First of all, stay tuned. Secondly, send us your questions. And third, invite others to tune in to That's Truth. We have 90 minutes left in the program, so stay tuned. We've got lots of great information. Now, Pastor, as we embark on this new series of programs on Bible prophecy, as you look around at contemporary things that are happening, even things that are reported in the BBC News or whatever news source you subscribe to, are there things that you can point to and say this is taught in the Bible?
1: Um, I really believe that we are living in what I might call momentous days. And there's so much happening on the world scene that I think is um, indicating to us that our redemption is growing quite near. Uh, There are world events and geopolitical alignments that are currently taking place within our time that tells us that uh, what the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles is coming to fruition, and we may very well be the terminal generation that culminates and bring all this thing together. Several things um, seem to lead me in that direction. First of all, of of course, is the strategic role that Israel is playing in current affairs. You can hardly turn on the radio uh, without being aware that the Middle East is becoming a quagmire, and Israel at the very center of a looming world crisis. All the major issues between Iran and uh, America revolves around uh, the matter of Iran getting nuclear power and the fact that it endangers Israel's security. And, of course, uh, America is one of the defenders of Israel. Uh, and the other thing is that when you compare what is happening in relation to the prophetic writings of the book of Ezekiel, uh, recent things that have happened, very, very recently, should cause every believer to perk up and understand what is happening on, in, in, on planet Earth. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, it talks about the coming invasion of Russia uh, with her allies, which a coalition of Arab, of Muslim nations, including Turkey, including Iran, including Sudan, um, including Libya. If you go to Ezekiel, you find that those nations are identified. Uh, what is interesting, very, very recently, is uh, two things. One has to do with the fact that um, Russia is now back in the Middle East, and that has happened within our time. Russia was removed from the Middle East, and now she has returned uh, because of the Syrian war, and Russia came in so subtly that not even America was aware that she was arriving on planes that flowed very low to the sea. They weren't picked up on radar, and now Russia has a major um, naval base set up in Syria. That is very significant. The other thing I think that's vitally important is that Donald Trump has declared Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Uh, The Bible tells us in the book of Matthew that Jerusalem will be trodden on the foot by the Gentiles until the time be fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So clearly, um, the fact that Israel is now in control of Jerusalem and it's a capital, I think that's a significant Prophetic landmark that's been made, and then one one recently happened, which I think should alert everybody is the fact that uh, Donald Trump came to power, uh, making certain promises, and one of the promises was withdraw the American troops from the Middle East. Uh, He did that recently. Uh, He got a lot of backlash because it seemed to be material the Kurds. But what is significant is that by doing that, a void was filled, and now you have a NATO ally which is. Turkey working conjointly with Russia uh, to form a buffer between Syria and Turkey. Now that is very, very significant because Ezekiel tells us very clearly that one of the allies of Russia is going to be Turkey. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this I don't think I could have foreseen how this could have worked out. Uh, but clearly what is we've seen and the witnessing on the world scene indicates that it's all working according to God's timetable and God's blueprint. But I think that, those, that these are significant things that are happening in our times, our contemporary period, and we ought to be aware of how close we are uh, to midnight. When you add to that, um, Brother Nathan, uh, the parallels that the Bible draws in the Scripture that will uh, alert us that we're drawing towards the end time. For example, our Lord said in the days of Noah. There are two things about the days of Noah that you read that. The very imaginative man's heart was evil continually. Do we have an evil generation? Yes. It is so perverted that with the avalanche of pornography that has dominated people's minds. Now, guys can hardly look on girls and see them as objects, sex objects. Hmm. But we're in that age of real, real evil. And then the other thing was violence filled the earth. And however you turn on the news or you read, read the newspapers, the atrocities, the brutal atrocities that are being committed, the violence, reckless violence. And then, of course, it talks about the days of Sodom and Umar. Nobody would dispute that we're back there. We, we've actually gone beyond Sodom and Umar. Sodom and was uh, the sin of sodomy. We've gone beyond that now uh, with the transgender and all these other things. And uh, also, don't forget uh, the Bible talks about the rise of the king of the East, China. Who would have thought in our generation that China would be a net learn, uh, lender to America and that America would owe China $2 trillion and that she is now the major competitor with America? Not even in my coming up, bro- brought up, see, as, as it were, to use the language, uh, could we have ever conceived that China w- would have ever risen to this level. But again, the Bible talks about the, the King of the East. And then the Cashless Society. I was told while I was in um, St. Vincent discussing certain matters with some pastors and different persons were there, that even in Europe now, by the way, uh, they're now putting the microchip under the, into, the, into the hand. Uh, this is all leading to this cashless society with the mark of the beast. Uh, so things are happening that are really, really indicating to us that the signs of the time are there and that we are minutes to midnight, but the contemporary events seem to be moving in the direction of Bible prophecy and the fulfillment and we ought to be keenly aware of what is happening.
0: You're listening to that's truth and if you just tuned in, I was sharing earlier that we are starting a new series on Bible prophecy. And as usual, you can contact us. We look forward to your interaction. The phone number is one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 1- 268-782-1454 The time in our studio across the, and across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7:39 Pastor before we get into the details of Bible prophecy, why is it important that we study it and why should we study it?
1: Well, it- I think when you look at the Bible uh, very, very clearly, the amount of time and space devoted to Bible prophecy is just astronomical. It certainly underscores the importance that God places on Bible prophecy. If you read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that a great section of it is preoccupied uh, with prophecy. As a matter of fact, I'm told that one-fourth of the entire Bible uh, was prophetic, Uh, When it was first written And that is very, very significant So I think if God devotes so much space uh, To to prophecy I think that is an indication to us Of how important it should be to the believer Uh, God stresses it And therefore it is significant and important And I think we have to look at it that way The other thing I I believe about prophecy Is that um, studying Bible prophecy Helps to vindicate What I call the authority of Scripture Uh, No other religious book, Um, no other religion that I can think of uh, deals with future issues like the Bible does. Uh, All other religions seem to avoid or either silent about the future, but when you come to Scripture, from Genesis to Revelations, it is filled with prophetic utterances, and there's no greater proof of the inspiration of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible, than the fact that God has made prophetic utterances hundreds of years uh, prior to the events being fulfilled. So I think that one of the reasons why we just study the Bible because it helps us to firm up our belief in Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. One mathematician, by the way, has calculated that the prophecies related to the first coming of Christ, that if you take all of the prophecies that were made in relation to His first coming, the probability of those happening would be one to 87 by 93 zeros now that is that is that is beyond the realm of possibility to be honest with you but that gives you an idea that um, this Bible is therefore reliable it's dependable it's authentic it's real it's infallible it's inerrant and it's authoritative and it is certainly inspired but Bible prophecy certainly would lead us to understand that uh, when you look at Scripture uh, that's exactly how we can feel that this book is authoritative the third thing that I think that would uh, reasonably should study prophecy, because prophecy reveals God's power and wisdom. Um, you know, sometimes we living in a world where we think God has been knocked off his throne and man is ruling, planning earth, and directing the affairs of planet earth. But when you go to Bible prophecy and you see that God has an agenda, God has a, a, a blueprint, and that blueprint is being systematically uh, come into play, one begins to see both the power of God to bring these things to pass and also the wisdom of knowing exactly what would happen. Um, God, I mean, when you study Bible prophecy, uh, you see that uh, planet Earth is fulfilling God's program and God's plan, and uh, that is a result of divine wisdom and divine power. It cannot be accomplished apart from divine wisdom and divine power. When you go to the book of Daniel, for example, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, you see the whole panoramic view of world history settled there from the beginning of the Babylonian Empire until the Antichrist comes. It's all there in seed form in the book of Daniel uh, where he had these visions and um, uh, and he had the visions of beasts, etc., etc. But if you read that clearly, um, we have the entire history of Gentile history, what's called the time of the Gentiles, from the time of the Babylonian Empire until the Roman Empire, the renewal of the Roman Empire, and the final phase of the ten horn, uh nations that the Bible talks about. Uh, so history is really his story. He wrote the script. He put the actors on the scene, and he directs the, these uh, to the predetermined end that he has set about, and his wisdom and his power clearly uh, is demonstrated. And please remember that uh, even though God is predetermined that some things will happen, uh, he has to operate within the parameters of human freedom and human will. And so that will take incredible power and wisdom to be able to maintain human freedom meet human will, and at the same time accomplish his purpose. And I think when you study Bible prophecy, you marvel how he could accomplish this uh, and still not violate uh, the human will that he's given to us. The, the other thing is that uh, prophecy reveals God's purpose. And what I mean by that, uh, God has a purpose for Israel, God has a purpose for the nations, the Gentile nations, God has a purpose for the church, God has a purpose for the saints, God even has a purpose for Satan and his minions. And God even has a purpose for the wicked. And the book of, uh, when you study Bible prophecy, all of that uh, is clearly seen. And nothing assures our heart and uh, allays our fears more than the knowledge that that purpose of God is being worked out on on planet Earth. And then another thing that I would say why we should study Bible prophecy is because it it brings the believer peace. In the midst of the world that is confused, confused and leading into turmoil, Uh, the child of God is guaranteed and assured that God is in charge. You remember in John chapter 14 when our Lord was going away and he told them let not your heart be troubled uh, and they were going to a point of I suppose despair. He's leaving us. What are we going to do? Remember he he, he affirmed their faith by telling them two things. In the interim period between my absence and my returning you've got to exercise faith in myself, my person, and in my work. I go to prepare a place for you. So maintaining your faith in the person of Christ and the work that he's going to accomplish on our behalf gives the believer peace. And that is why in that particular um, prophetic reference, given John chapter 14, uh, he tells them not to be troubled, but to just have faith in him, faith in his person, and faith in the promise that he will return, that where he is, there will be also and then another final reason I think we should study Bible prophecy and, and is because it is designed ultimately to incentivize the believer towards holy living. If you check any prophetic passage in the New Testament that talks about the Lord's return, the second coming, uh, it's always an incentive to godliness and to holy living. Every man that has this hope does what? purify himself. Read the book of Peter. Uh, Peter said, if you know these things are going to be dissolved, what man of men uh, a conversation you ought to have in all holiness. So the, the <laughs> fact that we know the Lord is going to return, the fact that prophecy is being fulfilled, um, tells us very clearly uh, that it becomes an incentive for us to live uh, holy lives. Colossians chapter 3, for example, having talked about the Lord's um, return, um, he talks about putting off things that are flesh, manifested in the flesh, and put on things that are manifested by the Spirit. But the incentive there is the fact that uh, the Lord is going to return. I think those are about six good reasons why we should um, study Bible prophecy, why we should be interested in Bible study, in, in Bible prophecy. It's not designed uh, to fill your ego and increase your pride. It's designed to humble you and to incentivize you to live a holy life. So I went to Google and I typed in Bible prophecy,
0: and the first four things that popped up were specific dates that people were prophesying and saying that the Lord was going to return. Mm -hmm. And the big problem is, Pastor, they're all four different dates. So there's obviously some confusion. One of them said 2019, one of them said 2450, and one of them said 2050 there's obviously some difficulty and some confusion out there when it comes to Bible prophecy is there a reason that there is confusion and difficulty
1: yeah let me just use an illustration uh, in in harmony with what you just gave Uh, about I think about two years ago uh, I met a gentleman uh, and I was trying to find some equipment and I found a guy who was a uh, he was a joiner he had some equipment was selling Second-hand equipment. I was trying to secure some of it, Uh, but when I visited him, I got into a conversation with him. Uh, He was following some person on television, and he had given me the date that the Lord will return was October. Uh, What happened, brother Nathan, is while I'm talking to him and he's giving me this date of October, there was a burst of thunder, and he said, "You see, that confirms what I'm telling you. This literally happened in Antigua." Mm -hmm. And I told him, I said to him, I said, "I can guarantee you one thing." The Lord is not going to return to the date you just gave me, because the Bible says no man knows the hour nor the day. I saw him long after the event, he had told me the date was going to take place. And um I mentioned to him, I, I mentioned. I said to him, you know, I told you it's not gonna happen because <laughs> clearly uh but then he, you know what amazes me is that People have the clear scriptures that tells us that no man knows the day nor the hour, but yeah. yet people set dates. The Jehovah's Witnesses are infamous for that. I remember in the 70s when I was a boy, I remember uh, they emphasizing the Lord was going to return, and uh, there was um, some confusion in 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 the, in, in, in relation to that because they were pushing this this whole concept. If you read the history of the Jehovah's Witness. You'll see it's not just in the 1970s, there's several times before and after that they predicted the Lord would return, and of course, he hasn't as yet. That's a great disappointment. The Seventh-day Adventists, uh, the whole movement was started because in 1933, um, Miller prophesied the Lord would return, and then when that wasn't, he didn't return, then they changed it changed in 1934, October, and again he didn't return. It was an embarrassment. Uh, People had sold their things, and just waiting for the Lord to return, didn't return. And then what happened is, of course, the Seventh-day Adventist movement was saved by a guy called Hiram having a vision that the Lord returned, but he didn't return to earth, he returned to heaven, and he went into the second compartment of heaven called the Holy of Holies, and there he's doing what is called the investigative judgment. It is that uh, dream that saved the whole Seventh-day Adventist movement, and is built on the cult of the uh, the investigative judgment heresy but it was an act of prophecy where the date was wrong anytime you set a date it's going to be wrong because the bible says no man knows the date the time or the hour and i think that has led people to disbelieve in bible prophecy because they can always say but uh, you know this group said this this group said that they set the date it becomes an embarrassment to the church and in a very well sense, it makes people to be skeptical and cynical about the fact that there is going to be a return of Christ, because these people who are date-setters are clearly sensational. Often it's to sell books, by the way. I remember I got a book sometime, I think it was, I forgot, 101 reasons or 20, what, what reasons why the Lord will return by a certain year. And you read the book and all the arguments, it sounds very plausible. The truth is the matter the year is gone. The Lord has not returned. But it's a bookseller. If you want to sell books, you start dealing with prophecy and start setting dates, and if out of sheer curiosity, people are going to buy the book just to see it, but you've made your millions, it's dishonest, it is mercenary, and it is wrong.
0: So are you saying that there's an aspect where Satan is behind these date settings in order to get people disillusioned with the Bible?
1: Well, let me ask you a question. If you you were the enemy of God, and you um, you control a great enterprise of infernal spirits, and your, your job is to discredit Christianity, would it not be a clever ploy for you to uh, motivate people, for whatever reason, to set dates, knowing that those dates would be disappointments, because you're undermining the credibility of Christianity, you're actually destroying the Christian faith in a very real sense, and... You're actually making the Bible seem as though it is irrelevant, is false, it has errors in it. So I think it's no question in my mind that behind a lot of this activity is demonic powers. And Paul talks about it, does he not? That in the latter days, uh, men would give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of who? Demons, right? Doctrine of demons. Behind, uh, in the latter days, these, these uh, false prophetic utterances are demonic powers. But coming back to your question you asked, why is there this confusion about Bible prophecy? I think the main problem with uh, Bible prophecy and uh, and understanding Bible prophecy has to do with the method employed uh, to interpret Bible prophecy. The method that you adopt um, to interpret uh, the Scriptures is pretty much what has been responsible for the deviant views and the variant positions that are happening today. And when you talk about whether you have a pre mill or mid uh, pre mill or mid or post mill or whether you've got a pre tribulation or mid tribulation or post tribulation, all of that confusion comes from the fact of the method of interpretation uh, and that is where uh, if you 're going to understand bible prophecy, you have to have a song basis for interpretation so it 's a really hermeneutical problem when it comes to understanding bible prophecy. So if you're going to have a debate or discussion on prophetic scriptures or doctrine of eschatology, the antecedent concern has to be finding a method of interpretation that you mutually agree on and one that's in harmony with scripture. If you don't have that basis, you'll always end up uh, in some kind of confusion. So the key problem uh, really has to do with the, the method of interpretation. The Word of God is going to be understood. It has to be interpreted correctly. And to be interpreted correctly, you had to follow proper rules of interpretation. So I think that's the biggest problem you have when it comes to Bible prophecy. For example, uh, a lot of the major groups today, like the Seventh Adventists, the Jehovah's Witness, even the Reformed Baptists, I would say, have no place for Israel in their theology, in their eschatology. So because of that, they'll always end up with a false interpretation because you can't read uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 without understanding Israel's past, Israel's present, and Israel's future. And Israel is going to play a major role in the end times. And you don't have that because the reason for that is that all of these promises that were made to Israel are now seen as transferred to the church. Right. So Israel doesn't play a role. And Israel, as she is today, is not conceived as... Uh, God bringing Israel back in the second time which the prophets had said and reestablish her in the land in unbelief but then God has a purge that's the reason for the tribulation period by the way she's coming back in unbelief but that was the divine plan but a lot of other groups do not have Israel as part of the uh, prophetic uh, purpose of God and therefore the eschatology would definitely be wrong
0: you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, we are also on Facebook Live. If you go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed, you can see what's going on behind the scenes in the studio. You can comment your questions And they will get passed along to Pastor Murphy. If you would like to call and be put live on the air, the phone line is available. The number is 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Time in our studios and across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.56. We're talking about Bible prophecy. And Pastor, I have a question for you. What do you hope to accomplish by discussing Bible prophecy? Are you trying to set a date? Are you trying to convince everyone that's listening? Or what's your goal?
1: I'm not a date setter because I am not allowed in Scripture to set dates. I mean, if I take the Bible very literally. I take it, um, it's infallible, it's inerrant. And when God says that no man knows the day nor the hour, uh, clearly uh, it would be folly of any man to try to set a particular date. However, we can know the times. And our Lord actually condemned the people for being able to discern the, the times and the signs and the skies and could not discern the times in which they were living. And I do feel that we can... Uh, study Bible prophecy and have an idea of the approximate time time zone in which we're living uh, so I am, I'm actually trying to deal with this particular subject to let people understand that we are really very very close to midnight and what I mean by that the prophetic clock is running out and there's so many things in the world scene that is leading us to this direction um, the moral Decline that we have in here. We've got the the apostasy, people falling away from the faith and people almost trembling, wondering how could such a person who believed for such a long time and led people down a trail can led them out, lead them off to a rabbit trail and now they are abandoning the faith. I think we're going to witness those kind of things. Um, the the geopolitical alignments that I just mentioned before, I, I think that is so much that is there um, in the contemporary world that indicates to us. I've had people who are not even Christians say it can't get worse than this. I've had Christians who have said, well, if, if we have another decade like this, we're not too sure what what we're going to be in. I, myself, I'm a little bit concerned that uh, if the Lord tarries for the next decade, that I think that some Christians are going to go to jail. I have no question about that at all. If the, if the moral position that is being advocated by the first world countries that is being pushed on the third world countries... Uh, we're going to find it difficult to preach on certain subjects it, unless we truncate the Bible and uh, destroy part of the Bible and, and cut out parts of it. But if we're going to preach the whole council of God, we're going to run into clash with uh, government policies and even the laws that will be put on the books. I must commend the Attorney General, by the way, recently. I was just given an article where he made it very, very clear that he will not be part of this nonsense about same-sex marriage and yeah. uh, legalizing boogery and so on and so forth, I, I, I've said this on this program and said again, he's perhaps the most courageous um, um, Attorney General that I know in the Caribbean. He's a marked man. The moment you made those kind of public statements, you can, I can guarantee you that those have gone off to, the, to Europe, that's gone off to America, uh, and um, I can guarantee that he's a marked man. I would not be surprised that after he loses, uh, well, if he retires, that in the future he may be blocked to go into certain countries because of the position he's taken. But he's a very, very courageous man to come out so boldly and state that he's gonna, he will oppose it and that he'll have to take, him, take the government to court. Uh, I commend him highly, and I hope that he has the intestinal fortitude to follow through on these matters and not um, give in to the pressure he's going to feel from the outside world.
0: Pastor, you were talking about the difficulty in interpreting uh, Bible prophecy, and it depends on what form of interpretation, you, what school of interpretation you follow. Can you? Is it possible to categorize the different approaches? Are there too many?
1: Well, the two prevalent methods by which um, people interpret Bible prophecy, and this explains, by the way, why there is such divergent views on the, the matter of eschatology. And there is what they call the allegorical method, um, and there's what you call the literal method. The approach that we adopt, and when I say we, I mean um, evangelical Christians, uh, fundamental believers who take the Bible seriously, that we take the literal approach. But uh, those are the two main approaches to interpreting Bible prophecy. So, So you either use the allegorical method or use the literal method.
0: Why did God not give us a date and say, I'm coming back in 2032 on the 31st day of the year?
1: Well, uh, let's let's suppose you've done that. Uh, it's, it's possible that man is so depraved he might just live for the devil and then just before the Lord comes back maybe uh, think that he can just turn his life over to the Lord. Uh, the other thing is, I think, is to keep us living in the spirit of expectancy. Uh, and I think that helps to keep... on our lives and restraints on our lives the fact that we know he can come back at any moment if perhaps we have the thought of going away from him or doing something that is contrary to his will I think it puts um, restraints on us and bring us back in line Um, so I think that's that's probably one reason I can think about um, and uh, of course if he did do that as well um, we would expect that people have a more urgency uh, to reach people with the gospel. Um, but we don't know why he didn't give us a specific time. but he has given us specific signs that he talks about that we can know, uh, have an idea. And remember that all the signs in the Scriptures have to do with the second coming, not the rapture. So when you can see the signs relating to the uh, the second coming, it means that the, ru- the rapture is, is, is very, very close, because no sign... Uh, in the New Testament has anything to do with the, the rapture. It has to do with the second coming. The rapture is imminent. It can happen any time. But when you begin to see on the landscape, signs that indicate that the if we think that we get the second coming, one ought to be aware that we are very, very, very close to the Lord's rapture. So um, I think it's time that we pay attention to these things.
0: Remind us how soon the rapture, how much earlier the rapture takes place to... Uh, the second coming.
1: Well, we know this <clears throat> in terms of the the rapture. We know that there's going to be the tribulation period, and then there's going to be the second coming when the Lord comes back in all of His glory. Mm-hmm. But we don't know uh, what is the period between the rapture and the second. And the second. we don't know <clears throat> when the the the, the um, tri- tribulation is going to to begin. When I say we don't know that, we will not be here. For example, right. we know in the Book of Daniel that the tribulation period would last for seven years. Right, We know that. Uh, we know also that there's going to be a, a, a covenant made with Israel with the Antichrist that would last for seven years and then be broken in the middle of seven years. But we do not know when the rapture will occur and that must occur before the tribulation period because the tribulation period has to do with Israel and the nations and God disciplining Israel. She's brought Israel back in unbelief and now Israel has to be purged but it has to do with Israel and the nations. The Bible says that God has not appointed the believer to wrath. So we will not suffer that period of wrath. We will be raptured and taken out. Uh, But the point I'm making here is that we know the tribulation is going to occur. We see some of the major actors already that's involved, and that should cause great concern for us at this point in time.
0: I heard a preacher say just the other day that uh, he believed that the... Satan is continually having people, Satan doesn't know the future, but Satan is continually having pawns in the world politics that could serve as the Antichrist in the case that that fits God's timetable. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could have been hypothetically Hitler, or it could have been Stalin, or it could have been these different individuals. Have you ever heard that approach?
1: Yeah, I've heard that. As a matter of fact, um, people use in the past... Bible numerology. Okay. And what they do, I, you know that the Hebrew language, each letter has a certain numerical value. Right. As well as the Greek. Greek letter has a numerical value. People have taken the words uh, of a name, like Hitler and uh, mm-hmm. others, and get the summation of what that total is. It's coming to 666. So they've come to the conclusion that Hitler was the Antichrist. That's that 's what I think is the danger the sensationalism that we that people pursue, um, and we'll probably have a time to talk about the danger of, of bible prophecy mm-hmm. uh, but we we can only speak on what God has revealed. The problem with this is that we want to peep more into the future than God has revealed, and we come up with conclusions that are often proven to be false we're trying to find the antichrist uh we're trying because in the number six 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 we 're trying to decipher what that really means. But I think as we move towards the end time, I think it's going to become much more clearer what's the significance of that number 666. We know it's the number of a man. We know that. And we know that he's going to be the Antichrist. But whether or not using Bible numerology would indicate that's his name, I think that's in the realm of speculation.
0: You were discussing the two different schools of interpretation, uh, allegorical and the literal Can you develop the allegorical and explain what they're about and what we should be on the lookout for?
1: Yeah, when when we talk about the allegorical method of interpretation, um, it's a method that does not take the literal sense of the Scripture. Uh, It believes that the literal sense really is a vehicle for a secondary sense, that it has a, a more spiritual, moral, or figurative, or more profound meaning. So it doesn't literally mean what it says, it just has a hidden meaning, but the literal meaning is, is there to facilitate this secondary interpretation. Uh, this is a method that was pretty much developed by uh, a guy called or- Origen, um, a church father, and he really introduced it. So in the allegorical method, you're looking for the secondary meaning, uh, and you're trying to seek something that is more deeper and much more spiritual. Uh, and that's that's a problem, um, rather than taking it literal, trying to see some 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 hidden meaning, some spiritual meaning. So, to sum up, it is taking a literal meaning and seeing that as a vehicle for a deeper meaning, as a secondary meaning that has some spiritual meaning or some deeper meaning than is actually in the text itself. That is the ad- ad- allegorical method. So, in a way,
0: in a common language, they're making it more complex than it has to be?
1: Yeah, it's like it's like trying to it's like um um it's like the bible would would speak of um you, you take i heard a guy one time preach on um the this good samaritan mm-hmm. and everything in the good samaritan meant something that was not there for example the donkey was the car uh the two pence was the new testament and the old testament uh the n was a church I mean every single part of the thing was given some some hidden secret and of course uh it is all fanciful and the more creative the imagination is and this is by the way part of the problem what I call narrative preaching there are people that are not didactic preachers they don't look for they don't hardly preach from the new testament which is a didactic book that teaches principles they always look for some story in the old testament and then they 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 they, they always embellish the story with their imagination to the point where I, I i had a sermon this week that talked about uh, being let down and the person went to the um jeremiah maybe let down in, in down in the well and he used that whole phrase being let down and, and the whole sermon was being let down or your friends being let down but that's not what he's talking about he's let down into a well mm-hmm. but it was creative very very creative and very very imaginative that is allegorical preaching. That's not literal preaching, because Jeremiah was literally let down into a well, into into muck. But using that phrase and giving some meaning to it that is not actually in the text, um, it was an interesting, stimulating sermon. I uh, must say quite enjoyable, but nothing to do with the text. That's the allegorical method.
0: Is there ever a time and a place to interpret the Bible in an allegorical way?
1: Yeah, there is when the the Bible gives you justification for that. For example, you go to Galatians, where Paul uses Sarah and uses um, um, Hagar and uses um, Isaac and Ishmael as types. Uh, So that's an allegory, and Paul applies that in relation to the law and in relation to faith. So it, you do have a basis for it, but that basis is established by Scripture, not by your creative imagination. So I do feel that when there's an allegory in the Bible uh, and the Bible gives you a basis for that, then it becomes uh, the, the proper use. There are also types in the Bible, and there are good reasons for having biblical types. Like Adam was a type, right? I mean, Adam is a type of the second Adam, who is Christ. Uh, there's no doubt that the ark is a type of Christ, one door, et etc. et cetera. And, uh, but if you go to Peter, it references made to the ark that we're saved through the ark in the book of Second Peter. So you have to try to establish it's a biblical precedent for it, a biblical warrant for the use of allegorization. Other than that, it is left to the creative imagination of the person, and that can go anywhere.
0: Are there specific dangers that you would warn of when it comes to this allegorical definition, but one of the things,
1: yeah, one of the things is that it fosters subjective, fanciful speculation. In other words, there's no limit. Like, for example, the literal method, you, you, it's the limit because you compare scripture with scripture. In the allegorical method, it is pure human speculation, my subjective opinion of the passage. And uh, if I am very, very creative in my thinking, um, I can actually draw conclusions that are illegitimate so it is the whim and the fancy of the interpreter who decides what it means and that's one of the dangers the second thing is that um, the individual's mind becomes the deciding basis of the meaning of the scripture and becomes the final authority it is what he says it means it's not what the scripture says so there's no comparison with scripture to establish this is what this particular verse means and then we're left without any means of conclusion to test what that person has interpreted. How do we test what is what he what he said is there if there's no reference to the scriptures and there's nothing outside of within uh, outside his imagination that establishes whether or not this is a true interpretation. So the the problem of uh, being subjective and fanciful, the problem that uh, it's the mind of the individual that determines the interpretation and the fact that there's no final objective authority to decide what the meaning is, is part of the problem with using the allegorical method.
0: Pastor, the passage that says that Scripture is not of any private interpretation, would that be a defense against the allegorical uh, interpretation in the sense that it's saying you can't interpret this just of your own, uh, your own opinion, that you'd have to compare it with Scripture?
1: I think that's a solid uh, point you've made there, that um, no individual scripture is to be interpreted apart from reference to other portions of scripture. And I think you're right on the ball there, and that's what's the allegorical method, um, because it's not literal, and because they're given a secondary meaning to the actual literal words, um, it is the mind of the interpreter that determines the meaning, and that's the danger. But we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. Other than that, we can be led down a a false trail of interpretation.
0: Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 813 We're discussing Bible prophecy. Do you have a question about it? Maybe it's not necessarily that you have a question, but someone has asked you a question and you're not really sure how to answer it. You don't feel that you have done it justice or you may not have been able to take the time to study it out and you'd like Pastor Murphy's assistance in answering the question. Maybe it's a family member, a co-worker. Maybe it's someone from your church. Give us a call. We would like to... Answer your question from a biblical worldview. The phone number to be put live on the air is 1268-462-7420. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1268-782-1454. One two six eight seven eight two one four five four for WhatsApp or text. I don't know how you're doing this evening. I don't know how your week is going, but I am very thankful that you have tuned in to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Bible or Pastor Murphy. Uh, the allegorical method. Anything else you'd like to mention before we? Spend some time talking about the literal method.
1: No, I just would like to say that if you read the church fathers, not the church fathers, they use the allegorical method. Really? It, yeah. It was only during the, uh, the Protestant Reformation, the disco- rediscovery of the what is called the grammatical um, uh, method, uh, grammatical historical method, which is literal method. That, that so, are
0: you saying that we're smarter than the church fathers?
1: No, I'm not. I'm just saying that we're, we're dealing with human beings who had their own idiosyncrasies, and depending on the age and time in which they live, uh, they followed a particular line of interpretation. Uh, however, if you go to the, the, the book of Acts and uh, read the uh, the interpretation of those prophecies, that was very literally taken, very literally, at the resurrection. Uh, Peter was able to himself to say that this literal resurrection, you know, David is in his grave, but he said he would not leave his holy one. This is referring to... So he took that very literal. So the, in the first century, clearly, there were literal interpretations. You read Paul's writings, and you see that Paul took the Bible very, very literal. But there came a stage where the church moved away from the literal interpretation of the Bible, and they got caught up in the allegorical method of the Bible. Where the, and you read some of these uh, church fathers and some of the fanciful interpretations, um, you must be aware that they came to those conclusions not based on the literal interpretation of the Bible, but because they fell into this um, error of the allegorical approach. And some of the interpretations are, are not only weird; they're very fanciful. And don't be surprised when you read some of the church fathers that you discover these things. But it was during the Protestant Reformation where you got uh, Luther and and um, Calvin. They're the ones where it brought back this this um, what is called the grammatical. Method, the um, historical grammatical method which is called Little Mel, back into focus. As a result of that, by the way, you will find that some of the greatest exegetes that the world has ever known came through that period after the return to the Little Interpretation of the Bible. So you've got great works by Luther and Calvin, um, you got works by A.T. Robinson, you got Machen, all those kind of guys, uh, fantastic expositors because they were returned to the proper interpretation of the bible a little interpretation and that opened up the whole scripture in all of his glory people like john macarthur and um, um he comes to mind immediately uh, david jeremiah all of these are literal interpreters who take the bible and get into the gra- grammar the word the 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 the, the, um, the syntax um the sentence structure the etymology uh, this has now led to a, a whole revolution of, of really getting deeper insight into Scripture. You read some of the Church Fathers, it, it's a, a different world altogether, um, more fanciful than it is actual and literal, and that's where the literal interpretation is actually brought out, the, the open and the meaning of Scripture in a way that um, t- previous to, to that period was not known.
0: Give me a little clarity here. Can a person be saved if they hold mostly to the allegorical approach?
1: Well, I don't think anybody would dispute that the church fathers were saved. Most of them were saved. So that's not the issue. The issue is like, you know, it's, it's like this. Um, you take uh, Bible prophecy today. You've got different views. You've got our mail. You've got the pre mill, You've got um, post mill. There are Christians who fall into all of those categories. But the arm position, uh, normally as a result of taking the allegorical approach to the, to the, the, the um, Bible prophecy, I would not dispute that those people are saved. I think that many times the tradition in which you're brought up in, and the f- method of interpretation, uh, even the church you're brought into, sometimes they influence your, your views and that leads to to holding certain interpretations because Lutherans. I don't have any doubt that they, most Lutherans um, understand the gospel. The same thing with Calvinists. The same thing with the Reforms and uh, the Episcopalian. I don't have any doubt that many people in the Anglican Church also understand the gospel and the save. But again, uh, those types of churches, the Anglican Church, and so on and so forth. Those are churches that really. Uh, interpret Bible prophecy using the allegorical method because that is part of the tradition.
0: So what specifically determines whether a person is saved? How do you become saved?
1: Salvation has to do with the fact of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, uh, that is what salvation is about. It has nothing to do with whether you believe you're a pre-mill or a-mill or, or, or mid-mill, whatever you want to call it. That has nothing to do with it. It has to do with a personal relationship between you and Christ, uh, and it has to do with your relationship to His work of redemption. But there are other things that um, that play no part in, in salvation, such things as baptism, such as confirmation, uh, such things as your view of eschatology and things to come—that has nothing to do with your salvation. So once you have put your faith and trust in Christ, repent of your sins, that is just in the essence what salvation is about.
0: If baptism doesn't have anything to do with salvation, why is the church? Why have some churches made it such a big deal?
1: Again, it goes back to the fact that when the Protestant Reformation took place, those that came out the Catholic Church never fully removed themselves from the Catholic Church. For example. Um, Luther and uh, and e- even um, Zwingli, for example, infant baptism. The If you are a Presbyterian, you still practice infant baptism. Same thing with the Lutherans. All of that is the vestige of coming out of Catholicism and not making a clean break and still being influenced by some of their doctrine. So they never really made a, a complete break with the system. Same thing with the Anglican Church. it's so much like the Catholic Church, uh, and even though they don't hold to the same basic fundamental doctrines with the articles that they've got, nonetheless there are influences there, like these sacerdotal things that they wear, these rituals and so on. That is part of coming out of Catholicism. that never really was fully purged. They still have some of the remnants of it.
0: You're listening to That's Truth. We are here not only to teach but also to interact with you. Do you have a question Maybe it's something that you're concerned about that's been said earlier in the program or you're wondering why the Bible does or doesn't say something on a particular topic. Give us a call. The phone line is available 1-268-462-7420. Maybe you'd rather send your question via WhatsApp or text. Go ahead and send it to one 268 782 1454. And I understand that some questions you may ask, want to ask, you don't want to be named or even said where you're from. Uh, if you want to stay anonymous, we will respect that. Uh, our goal here is just to answer your questions. And if you have a question, most likely there are other people who have that same question and are just waiting for you to ask it so that Pastor Murphy can answer it from a biblical worldview. Again, you can also comment your question on Facebook Live, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Pastor Murphy, let's spend some time talking about the literal method of interpretation.
1: Well, the literal method of interpretation, really, it where you give to each word the same basic Normal meaning an ordinary customary meaning that you would give to to that word in another context, um, this uh, literal method um, it 's called the grammatical historical method, and it emphasizes that the meaning of words and um, sentences are determined by grammatical and historical considerations so it 's not my imagination though no, is what the grammar says. If a particular word is used, it's how that particular word was used in that time, the historical use of that verse. So I'm now not not left to my whim and my imagination to say this is what it means. I must now do my research to see how that word was used, what that word means, how it was used in the context. Is it a verb? Is it a noun? Is it an adverb? Uh, is it a participle? Uh, those are things that are noted. Just that you would do ordinary English and do grammar in school, the literal method uh, applies to grammatical method and determines the meaning of a word depending on the historical context in which that word is found. So that um, you're now giving the ordinary customary meaning a normal meaning of the word, and it doesn't have any sh- some secondary spiritual meaning that higher than what is meant in the text. The text determines the meaning of the word, and the historical setting determines the meaning, and the grammar helps you to understand what that word is used. If I might use an illustration, uh, Nathan, when we have the communion service, we always talk about um, he that uh, partakes of this thing unworthily, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people think it means unworthy. Unworthily is an adverb, it's not an adjective. So it has nothing to do with the person, it has to do with the method that you do it. So that confuses a lot of people. They want to take communion, and then it's that word unworthy but if you check it in the greek language it's not an adjective an adjective relates to a noun or yeah. pronoun an adverb versus a verb or another adverb so it really has to do with the manner in which you do it not so much that you're worthy because nobody's worthy of the communion but if you're not aware of that uh many times people desist from doing particular elements because they think it has to do that they have to be worthy but that's not what the book is teaching <coughs> no if you didn't know the grammar you could be easily misled by a preacher who is not even aware of what it, what 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 it means. Uh, and I'm just using an illustration that, that helps clarify so many things to know that unworthy, is an adverb, and not an adjective. And it refers not to the noun, but it refers to the verb, how you do it. And I think uh, that little understanding opens a complete different understanding of the passage and the interpretation of the passage, and that helps you to have a better basis on whether or not you should partake of the elements.
0: Do you have any evidence or maybe additional examples that the literal method is of interpretation is the correct method?
1: Yeah, let me share uh, several things with you that um, would indicate that this is clearly the best method. Number one is, uh, it's a normal way of understanding almost all languages i mean no when you go study french you study another language they don't tell you that there's some secondary meaning to this specific word there's so just the ordinary way of doing that uh, the greater part of the bible also makes sense when taken literally i don't think anybody would dispute that if you had to find the hidden meaning by every word in the bible you would have a total confusion but uh, take the bible for it for what it is t- take the words in the normal uses as we would use them. And uh, I think we can we understand that um, it, 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 um, it helps us uh, make sense by just doing that. Uh, the other thing is that the literal method allows for the secondary allegorical method when demanded in the text. So depending on the genre of the literature, if you're doing a parable, or you're doing a narrative, or you're doing a didactic portion, or you're doing a, a proverb, the fact that you are using a literal method allows for symbolism to be there in the sentence as well. So it, it accommodates the allegorical um, element when there is need for interpreting a symbol or understanding an allegory. Um, all the other uh, meanings, the secondary meanings, the allegorical meaning, depends on the little meaning itself. So you can't even understand the allegorical meaning except you give literal meaning to the words that you use in the allegorical method. So clearly you need the literal meaning to understand even the allegory, otherwise you are total confusion.
0: Okay, say that again. I got lost.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm saying that the secondary method, okay, uh, depends on the literal meaning
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You see what I'm saying? So I'm saying that even to use this, the, the allegorical method, you must believe that the words have literal meaning as well. Other than that, you end up where nothing has makes any sense whatsoever. So it, even the secondary allegorical method is, is built on the belief that the words have literal meanings. Uh, other than that, you end up in fiction. The other thing is that uh, it's the only safe method to put a check on people's subjective imaginations if you don't have the literal method you have no way of putting check on what i think it means or what you think it means or what my imag- imagination says it means and it's the only uh, approach by the way that is in harmony with what we call the verbal inspiration of the bible we believe in the verbal we don't only believe in the content Inspiration that only the content we believe in the words of God. Every word is inspired. The literal method really is in harmony with that. That the little words are there for a specific purpose, and uh, it's not just the content of the passage that's inspired, but the little words. I think that falls in harmony. And then the other thing is that the biblical writers uh, confirm that this is how they interpreted uh, Bible prophecy. For example the allegorical method when applied to the book of Genesis will normally tell you that uh, God created by the process of evolution or that Adam was not a real person he was just a fictitious person or a a mythological person the fall did not actually occur and that's the allegorical method when you do that you rip the entire fabric of biblical doctrine because the book of Genesis is the seedbed of, of Bible doctrines and when you come to the New Testament uh, you find that our Lord believed in a little Adam and Eve. Matthew chapter 19, he that created them, male and female, made them this way. When you come to um, the fall of Adam, read Romans chapter 5. Uh, Paul deals clearly with the fact that there was a real fall and this real depravity. You come to Matthew chapter 24, our Lord talks about a real Noah's flood. Uh, you come to Matthew chapter 16, the Lord talks about a real Jonah and a real Moses. Most people interpret the the book of Jonah as an allegory, but our Lord interpreted it as a literal event that took place. So uh, the literal method is supported by the New Testament writers' interpretation of the Bible and prophecy. They took it very, very, very literally. The other thing that I think really, really supports this matter of applying it to um, Bible prophecy, literal method, take the prophecies that were made in connection with our Lord and his first coming Okay. all of those basically were literally fulfilled for example he was supposed to be the seed of the woman it wasn't some mythology or some allegory that was the seed of a woman Galatians fullness of time Christ was born of a seed of a woman he was come through the line of Seth you check the genealogy in Luke chapter 2 or Matthew that it comes through the line of Seth he was also uh, a descendant of Shem Again, go to these genealogies and find that he's in line with Shem. He used to be an offspring of Abraham, Follow the genealogy, very, very, very literal. He was to be from the tribe of Judah. Again, go to the genealogy, he comes through the tribe of Judah. He used to be conceived of a virgin, not some mythological or some allegorical imaginative. This was a real virgin. Matthew tells you about that very clearly. Isaiah prophesied it. He was to be born in Bethlehem, specific place. Micah tells you that. And of course, he is to be heralded by a voice in the wilderness, according to uh, Isaiah chapter 40, John the Baptist. And he would make a sacrificial offering of himself, Isaiah chapter 53. He would be literally pierced, uh, Zechariah tells on the side, and he will be cut off, according to Daniel uh, chapter 9, around 33 AD. Very literal events, very specific events. And if those were literal, fulfilled according to the prophetic word in the Old Testament in regards to the first coming, we have justification to believe that the future prophecies about the second coming are also literal, and they will be fulfilled literally.
0: Pastor, we have a question that has come in from a listener in Antigua. Thank you to the individual who sent it in. Good night. Pastor, what is the last prophecy that we should expect to be fulfilled before the coming of the Lord,
1: I don't know if there is any uh, specific thing that we should look for. All I would say to you that when the the the, the rapture of the church is eminent, can occur any time. Uh, what I would say to the uh, to believers is that when you look at the signs of the second coming, read the book of Matthew chapter twenty-four; those have nothing to do with the rapture. Uh, earthquakes, pestilences, wars and rumors of war, those are th- that, those are things that will predate the second coming. But when we are able to witness those kind of events occurring now, uh, we should be a, a very alert and alarmed that we are very, very close to the Lord's return in terms of the rapture of the church. So if you can see the events surrounding the second coming, um, as it were, one should be aware that the rapture occurs before the second coming, which has no signs. Uh, the rapture has no signs. And therefore, that should become the uh, the basis, I, I would say, to alert us that we are uh, very becoming very close to the rapture.
0: Another question is coming from another listener. Are there prophecies outside of the Bible that are or will be true?
1: In, you've probably heard of Nostradamus. You've probably heard of John Casey. Uh, Casey um, yeah. And uh, you've probably heard of Gene Dixon. Uh, they, these are people that made certain prophecies, etc. In particular, Nostradamus, it, it's believed that he made certain prophecies that, uh, that relate to the the, Lord, the, uh, the Second Coming, etc. But if you were to um, really do some little investigation about him, really to the fact a lot of what he wrote was so vague, that the interpreters really um, had to fill in a lot of the gaps. And it is more their interpretation than what what he actually said. But that's beside the point. We have one book, God's book. We have um, a beginning chapter, Genesis. We have an ending chapter, Revelation. Between Genesis and Revelation, God has revealed all that we need to know. We don't need to go outside Scripture. Any prophecy outside Scripture that goes contrary to Scripture is false. Any prophecy that supports Scripture, um, I'm not going to debate that, but I know that the Bible makes it very clear that if a prophecy is made, it doesn't come true. It's not of God. But I do not know of any uh, prophetic word outside of Scripture, besides perhaps Nostradamus that people talk so much about. And I haven't done an exhaustive study about him. But I do know that uh, he has made certain prophecies that seem to have come true. However, the, the language is so garbled that I wonder if it was not twisted to fit into a narrative to uh, big him up as though he's some great prophetic writer um, so but I have my concerns about those kind of things I want to stay within the parameters of scripture and I don't believe that there's any one passage of scripture that needs to be fulfilled uh, before the Lord comes for his church and raptures his church there are prophecies made in connection with the second coming and when we see those prophecies begin to happen we've got to be aware that the rapture occurs before the second coming so if we can see the second coming the signs of the second coming we know one thing we are very, very close to the Lord's return in terms of coming for the rapture of the church.
0: A question from a listener. Uh, Pastor, how would you defend creation if the person you're talking to mocks you for believing that Jesus was born of a virgin? Uh,
1: look, you're not going to win all the arguments with people. Uh, many times when you're dealing with those kind of people, the best per- best thing to do is to find a good book on Christian apologetics and uh, put that in their hand because you may not have the ammunition to be able to demolish the arguments that those people raise up. There are certain scientific arguments that might seem plausible, but on close examination, and you put it under the scrutiny of some of these great um, Bible scientists, um, they're able to demolish a lot of these arguments. So I would recommend that be a good witness, let your life uh, speak, Uh, He, let's say, you know, he might be a person might be much smarter than you are, might have more intellect than you than you have. Don't let that bother you. All I can say to you is to live out the scripture for him. Quote scripture, give him scripture. Let the Holy Spirit have something to work with in his life. But there may be occasions where you have to find uh, some resources to assist him in understanding uh, these matters. So when it comes to the the whole matter of creation, for example, there are a lot of Christian books that can be recommended that um, uh, really shows you that evolution is the greatest myth ever foisted on humanity. It's a pseudo-scientific fact, uh, not fact, hypothesis, (laughs) that uh, people have imbibed, and as a result, it's now in the schools, it's now in the universities, and it's really being demolished right, left, and center to the point now where a lot of these the evolutionary scientists are now talking about intelligent design.
0: Pastor, we have a caller to go on the air and ask you a question. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please.
2: Yeah, good night, pastor. Good night, sir. Good program. Thank you. Uh, I would like to ask you two questions, please, and know if you can help me out with
1: that. I can try.
2: Uh, the first one is. I had argument with a guy, and he tell me that the same God I'm praying to, is the same God he praying to. Uh-huh. He's, by the way, he's an unbeliever, uh-huh. and I tell him, well, God doesn't answer. of prayer the way he answer Christian prayer. He uh-huh. only answers answer prayer as a uh, Christian, as prayer when he comes to repentance. And so, so I draw a reference with Cornelius in Acts chapter ten. And he said, Well, he praying to God, and he know he's God, he got to praying too, and everything he has got, God gave it to him, to him, and he you know we have taken the Bible upside down. And he started, he started carrying on part so of it right there. And I say, oh, I will see further clarification crab- and that. Uh-huh. So that's the first one. And the second one is, uh, does. Uh, is everybody the child of God, or the Devil have his child? Because I know in John 8, 44, the Bible talk about your of your father, the Devil. Uh-huh. and I know in John first, John chapter one verse twelve, where the Bible says, "...as many that him into them gave it the power to become the sons of God." I know definitely that all of us are not the child of God. All of us are the creator of God. Yeah. Oh, to, well, let, let, cal-
1: let. And that's yeah, let me deal with the first one first. Uh, that has to do with a person who believes he's praying to God and uh, he's, he's, he's getting answers to prayer, etc. Et Look, I am of the opinion, uh, I have known that people say that God doesn't answer anybody unless uh, it's the prayer of repentance. I, I have a, a slightly different view because I, I go to Cornelius in the book of Acts where Cornelius was what you call a proselyte. A proselyte is a a Gentile who is trying to find God, and he's joined himself to uh, the Jewish religion. And uh, if you read that passage, you'll find that when the Lord sent Peter to Cornelius, um, we're told that the Lord um, told Cornelius that his prayers have gone up before God as a memorial, and the fact also that his ams deeds had been taken um, note of God, so here's a man searching for God, praying to God in the only in the way he only way he knows how to do that, and God is hearing him, and God knows that what he's doing is trying to seek to know the true and the living God, and God eventually sends Peter uh, to give him the message of how he can be saved and how he can be converted. But notice Cornelius is not a saved person; he's a man searching for God. And God says, I take note of your prayers that you were offering before me. Uh, so I am of the opinion that a person who is not a Christian, if he is praying to God and is seeking God with all of his heart, he wanna find God. Uh, I believe that if he uh he has that kind of pursuit. I think God almost I wouldn't use the word obligates himself, but he said, If you seek me, you're gonna find me. And if a man truly seeks God and he's seeking God in prayer, I think God will answer that prayer and bring that man to faith and trust in Christ if he's genuine. Now, if he's just preaching God, teaching God to get good things and have a good life, that's a different story altogether. But if he's in earnest trying to get to know God, I believe sincerely that God... You know, there's there's stories of missionaries who've gone to different parts of the world, and before they got there, and when they arrived, people said, We knew you were coming. Because God had revealed in a dream, for example, that uh, He would bring a certain type of people And uh, they were ready, they were right, because they were trying to find God, trying to for God And God eventually brought somebody along the way The other one about the... Um, there's no such thing as universalism, that's the doctrine that everybody uh, belong to God Everybody is in you know, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man The fatherhood of God is, 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 is a myth Now God is our Creator but he's not everybody's father, right? He's the father of those who believe. We become his sons, we adopt into his family. But we are, um, we all are his by creation, but we're not all of his by adoption or regeneration. So we need to distinguish between uh, God as the creator and God as our father. God is only the father of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So I think that person needs to get that thing very, very, very clear. Not everybody's going to heaven. Not everybody is saved, uh, not everybody is right with God, and uh, the Bible lays down certain conditions under which God receives us, and that is by receiving Christ and putting our faith. If a person hasn't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins, I don't care who they are, I don't care what religion they belong to, they simply will not have an entrance into heaven because He's the door and He's the life, and they need to repent and put their faith and trust in Him. <laughs>
2: okay and let me tell you one one more question sure. i remember that now uh i had with me i with me to them some of them guys down by the market by the side uh-huh. and i tell them that we are the seeds of abraham uh-huh. and a whole ton of them turn against me telling me oh adam was before for abraham to so wear the seed of abraham i say we are the adam's descendants but god tell abraham i will be full of your seed like the sand of the sea and
1: they had a big argument of telling me, oh, I'm a false prophet. And, uh, you know I mean, so, well, I'm not sure. Let me just suggest to you that what they might be thinking, I don't know what they might be thinking, but we are uh, uh, genetically linked to Adam. There's no question about that. We, yes, right? That. But we are the seed of Abraham in the sense that we follow in Abraham's faith. He is the father of the faithful, the ones who put their faith and trust in God, but we are not—we are not Jews in the sense that we are the natural physical descendants of Abraham. We are Jews in a spiritual sense, in the fact that we put our faith and trust in Christ. Because Abraham is the father of those who have faith, and people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ uh, are said to be the seed of Abraham in that sense, but not in a literal sense. So maybe that, that clarification needs to be made. Um, to those people that um, you understand that we are natural descendant of Adam because we inherit Adam's nature but when we put our faith and trust in Christ uh, we are part of uh, Abraham's seed in the sense that we are like Abraham putting our faith and trust in him because He he's the father of the faithful okay. I, I don't know if that helps yeah. Hey what I believe too. I know that. Okay, okay. okay. But see? look, you know, brother, all I can say to you is that you know, look, don't let people uh, in any way, um, you know, discourage you or frustrate what you know your, your Christian life. Keep on serving God, living for God, and speak the truth. And give no, up the truth. And
2: God has told me, they cannot speak to me, man. You know what I believe? I amen, mean? amen. Job jokes that they are like, passive rambling, and you know, the one they got to get out of all my peace. Yeah. And so he's they, so talking about, oh, look now, you are talking to us, and because he's and mm-hmm. me, you know, I, I say nothing, I know, I tell
1: them, well, the Bible says that. Yeah.
2: Well, if you I got yeah. the Word of God, and you don't accept it. I don't have to. to right. I yeah.
1: I, I try to quote Scripture. You know, when you give them Scripture, remember the Holy Spirit uses Scripture, the soul of the Spirit. So even though they may not accept the Scripture at that point in time, it's registered in their mind. And when the Holy Spirit begins to work in their life, He takes that same word that you might have quoted that then completely ignored, and at some point in their lives, the Holy Spirit could take that very same Scripture and use it as a sword to pierce their minds and their heart to bring them to faith and trust in Christ. So try to quote Scripture and help them to put some seed in their minds for the work of the Spirit to work.
2: I I to Scripture think, think to them, I them... To read and they reading it, but it's saying about this man, man, that wrote that, man that wrote
1: that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> live the life, brother. Live the life. They can't, they can challenge that, but they can't challenge the life. You live the life before yeah. them, and that will have a tremendous influence upon them. God. Amen. Thank you for calling. Appreciate that. God bless. Thank
2: you
1: for and the good work. Oh, God bless.
0: Bye. Thank you very much for that call from Bendel's Antigua. Pastor, we have a couple other questions that have come in from listeners. A listener from Antigua, are there any true prophets today?
1: I am hesitant uh, when it comes to those that proclaim themselves to be gifted with a prophetic gift. Uh, I see no basis for having modern prophets. I believe sincerely that God has given to us all that He has for us in terms of Scripture from Genesis to Revelations. I would challenge anybody to read Genesis and read Revelations and tell me if it's not the first page and the last page. Everything that you find in Genesis that was unraveled is completely put in order and in place in the book of Revelations. So I don't think there are not any prophets in this biblical sense that they have any new revelation. Uh, revelation is concluded. Old Testament and the New Testament the Old Testament is the Old Covenant the New Testament is the New Covenant there's nothing that we need beyond what God has given us in Scripture I think that not only that if you read the book of Ephesians it is said for example that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets so the foundation has already been laid there's no need for another foundation the superstructure is already there so I don't see any relevance for a modern prophet. Now, if you mean by prophet a person who expounds scripture, because that's what it means in scripture as well, a prophet is not only somebody who foretells scripture; is also somebody who explains scripture. Most of the prophets spoke to their times; <clears throat> they, they gave a prophetic word of the future, but they spoke to the times. So, if you're talking about a person who, uh, is a person who expounds scripture and explains scripture, I don't have a problem with that. But he's you're talking somebody who's supposed to have insight, and give me some some special knowledge that um, God has not revealed. I am very suspect of that, and I think that the danger of that is where led us to where we are today. You've got all kinds of craziness going on in churches because people claim to be prophets, people claim to be apostles. They're not apostles today either, by the way. Uh, to be an apostle, you had to be able to witness the resurrection of Christ, and there's nobody living who can witness to the resurrection. and that they actually saw Christ after his resurrection. Read the book of um, Acts, and see that's one of the great qualifications. But Uh, the Apostle Paul saw Christ
0: in a vision, or saw Christ, and there are people who would claim to say, well, I was in all saints, and I saw Christ, he appeared to me. So how would you respond to that?
1: My response to that (coughs) um, would be, I'm not going to dispute what you saw. Mm -hmm. I I can't dispute what you saw. But my 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 thinking is that most people who say they saw Christ is a the Christ they saw in Sunday school paper, you know that that's the Christ that they see. So they, <laughs> and that is that's a myth. Um, the the Christ we see in the Sunday school paper we see in some book is not the Christ of the Bible. So I think that's what they mean an imaginary Christ, but not the real Christ. Uh, Paul says we um, we don't know no man after the flesh, and uh, and Paul makes it very clear that who having not seen we want we love, okay? That's the biblical doctrine. So I am not going to embrace the idea that people have actually um, seen Christ. I can't dispute that. Uh, What I want to know, when you see Christ, what effect did it have upon you? What effect it had upon Paul was that it, it almost completely mesmerized Paul and and sent Paul down to his his knees because he was so overwhelmed by the power and the light that that radiated from Christ. People today who talk about seeing God, there's no real trepidation of fear that they talk about, as though they had a casual meeting and the Lord spoke to them. You read Isaiah again when he met the Lord. The the, the fear that is there, the, the tremor that is there, a real encounter with God would not leave you as you are. It would have a profound effect upon your life, so all of these let's talk about um seeing this and so and the next. I'm very skeptical on these things. I rather take the scriptures for what it says, but there are no prophets today in the biblical sense that there's any new truth being revealed, and there are no apostles in in, in the sense today that uh, they they're the ones that have been specially called of God uh for to for special mission Now, if you talk about uh in the sense of missionary, that's a different story altogether, but if you mean in the sense of the apostles. Um, a select group uh, which had the capacity to perform miracles and these affirmative gifts that were given uh, I hold those things in suspects
0: what's up question from another listener in the Caribbean good night wonderful program how does one not get caught up in sin after he becomes a Christian
1: all I would I would say to the person is keep a very close relationship with God get into the bible uh, get into the word of god um, build your, your your prayer life that's crucial watch the people that you associate with that you, that you afford. give get somebody who holds you accountable get another brother in christ that you trust and you believe is a godly person and if your weakness is in a particular area let him hold you accountable let him call you every week and, and ask you about how is, how you're dealing with that particular matter So I think accountability is... And then the other thing is this. Always avoid putting yourself where you make an occasion for the flesh. Paul warns about that. Make no provision for the flesh. And what that means, basically, if you know you've got a weakness for women, uh, I try not to be... uh, Avoid being with a woman alone in a private place. Be public. Take her to Kentucky, take her to some place, but don't take her on a ride where you go off on the beach somewhere, you sit under some kind of a tree, you're going to cut off some kind of an alley. Don't make provision for the flesh. Don't put a condom in your back pocket just in case. You're making provision for the flesh. And then I would suggest to you is that um, there's always a a door of escape when something is going to happen. Look for the door that the Bible says that God will with the temptation also make a way of escape and that may mean running that may mean just uh, you know fleeing that's what the Bible says but I think if you were to build a relationship with God in terms of your prayer life in terms of your your Bible study if you were to find some good very Christian friends iron sharp enough iron um, if you would avoid putting yourself in the position where you're catering to the flesh and if you would get somebody to hold you accountable uh, I think those simple five things will assist you uh, in dealing. And then the last thing is try to keep your life current, I- your confessional life current. In other words, don't let sins pile up a week or two weeks or a month or a year before you deal with them. Try to deal with them on a current level on a daily basis. Uh, as the Lord said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. I think if you were to do that. And the other thing I might add to you is find a good church where the Word of God is being preached. Not um, where you're being entertained, but where you, the meat of the Word is, can affect your life and the pastor is dealing with uh, moral issues and he's not afraid to talk about sin and call sin, sin. Uh, you know, it's not all flowery preaching, but f- preaching that convicts you and, 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 and uh, creates in your heart uh, a fear of God I think that would also help to assist you to keep in the narrow the right path.
0: Pastor, we have a question from a listener on Facebook. Do you believe that pastors should upgrade their skills if they went to college a long time ago, or should they rely on the Holy Spirit only to hone their skills?
1: Education is an ongoing process. Uh, Any pastor that stops learning, he starts dying in terms of his preaching. Hmm. He has to be um, current. He has to keep reading. He has to keep studying. If it's possible that he can do online courses, he ought to take those courses. Uh, We've got to remember that we're dealing with a very educated congregation. You've got people who've got all kinds of degrees these days, and um, the pastor must not lag behind in the terms of his education. So I would recommend to any pastor, do not care who he is, he must always be learning, he must always be reading, he must always be studying something. Uh, he has to be honing his skills. And he, the only time he should stop learning is when he's dead. Uh, but um, I, I, I just think that we ought to be... Look, you know there was a time when the pastor was the most educated person in the country? Hmm. I don't know if you know that. Uh, take Yale University, Harvard University, uh, Princeton University, all of those universities, which are the major universities in the States, were all founded to train pastors. Yeah. And the pastors at those times were the most educated people in the country. Uh, we cannot afford not to uh, be uh, current, uh, not to be in power with what's happening in, uh, in the world. And we ought to be learning and whatever skills we can. That will help us to improve our preaching and improve our connectivity with people and to be uh, able to discuss topics um, with people of every class in society, every level in society.
0: Pastor, we have three minutes left on the program and we'll continue this topic of Bible prophecy okay. next week. But what are you alluded to some dangers of studying Bible prophecy? I don't know if. Three minutes is enough time to elaborate on that, or if you want to put that till next week,
1: uh, I can I can just quickly mention a few things to you um, as far as the the dangers. One of the great dangers, of course, is spiritual pride. Um, few things puff up people more than knowledge, hmm. and uh, prophecy is an area of specialist field where people can become. Uh, very, very egotistical and the, the ego becomes inflated because they understand who the beast of Daniel is. They can distinguish between the king of the north, the king of the south. They seem to have some idea of what the mark of the beast is. It can actually foster pride. As a matter of fact, I know I heard of one pastor who had to resign from his church because every time they had a board meeting, these guys who were going off to all these prophetic conferences, that he he wasn't going, but they were going off. So they would always come up with some kind of knowledge, and they were always testing his knowledge of Bible prophecy. They seemed to know more than he did. And rather than encourage the pastor, it became it became a very disincentive that He was not up to par with them in terms of prophetic. So I, I think one of the, one of the great dangers is um, is certainly that that it can lead uh, to pride and uh, to feel that we have a superior wisdom because we have a grasp of the prophetic truth. The other thing is, another danger is making prophecy a test of fellowship. And what I mean by that is this, that a test of fellowship should be the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have different views on p- prophecy, and we should not make prophecy a test. So, for example, I can, I can have fellowship with a person who is post-millennial, uh, millennial. That's not going to determine whether or not I can have fellowship with him. But there are people that are very, very strict in these matters. And we need to remember that we didn't come to our position overnight. And depending on the school we went to, that helps us to understand these, these these type of things. So we can't make uh, prophecy a basis on which we fellowship. I think that would be a major mistake if we if we did that. And uh, the other thing is, prophecy gives you a pension for that which is sensational, uh, what I mean with that, you, you're disposed to that which is um, extreme. You you want to hear novelty, something new. You you you're not you're not satisfied with just wetting your appetite with the word of God. You always want to delve into something, that has some kind of myst- mystical meaning. So that pushes you further and further into the realm of mysticism, and um, you're always trying to find out, you know, create as it were. Uh, from current events, trying to create with your imagination and see how that turns into some kind of prophetic word. So, I think the, the element of pride and the ego, I think the matter of um, making it a, a basis of fellowship is a mistake, it's a danger. And I also think that the penchant for novelty and, sense, and that which is sensational also is encouraged by pursuing. Uh, prophetic studies
0: Now those are some fairly sobering warnings That you have There are some possible dangers Of studying Bible prophecy If that's the case Then should we still be studying Bible prophecy Do the advantages outweigh the the dangers then
1: Well it's as I said There's so much in Bible about prophecy How can we ignore it If God has put such importance to it We must study it
0: Be sure that you join us next week as we continue this series on Bible prophecy. If you have a particular question, write it down and contact us next week with it and allow Pastor Murphy to answer it from a biblical worldview. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. Thank you for joining us for today's program.